Welcome to the Beyond Sunday podcast, where we bring Sunday home. Join us as we dive deeper into First Baptist's weekly sermons, discuss practical applications, and answer your questions. Hello and welcome to the Beyond Sunday podcast. I'm Jordan Upton, the Director of Broadcast and Media Outreach here at First Baptist, and with me as always is Pastor Jeff Reynolds. Jeff, how are you doing? It is 2023, and I have only written 2022 on something I've dated one time. Hey. So far, so good. So that's, usually it's like March before I transition into the new year. So that's been great, man. How was your new year? It was really good. We watched more movies. What can I say? <laughs> We're movie people. That's great. Yeah, yeah. How was Porkapalooza? You know, and I'm going to tell you, so I mentioned that in my sermon, um, we do on New Year's Eve and then and then to a lesser degree on Super Bowl Sunday. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on New Year's Eve, we make pigs in a blanket, sausage balls, um, Rotel dip with sausage in it, uh, and we just throw health out the window. And it's one of our favorite meals of the year. And then the next night, my wife made chili. Like she has her dad's recipe, and it is yet another sodium laden, wonderful dish. But I am still in this sodium triglyceride, you know, nitrate, nitrite fog of having eaten so much processed pork. Um, but man, it tastes so good. So anyway, it was really fun. It was really fun. Uh, we didn't catch any movies, but. Uh, Actually, I caught a little bit of Wonder Woman on TV. Yeah. Great movie. Oh, I, I love it. Of course, Wonder I grew Woman. up watching, you know, what, what was her name? Linda, not Linda. Linda Carter. Linda Carter. Yeah. And, uh, and so, anyway, just a phenomenal movie. For sure. For sure. Okay. So, we're going into a new sermon series, Day by Day. And this Sunday, we talked about Acts 2, 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved." Okay, so the first question today actually comes from my brilliant wife, Taylor. Who, she is pretty brilliant. Yeah, for sure. We read here that the early believers dedicated themselves to four things, the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. While the identification of Jesus as Messiah was unique to the believers, these four ideas already had some level of existence in first century Jewish life. So new believers would have grown up in God-fearing communities that studied, worshipped, ate, and prayed together. What made the apostolic community unique? Well, so that's a great question because all of those things were going on. And and it's an important distinction for us to note that the first Christians did not view themselves as adherents of a new religion. They viewed themselves as Jewish people who had received the long-awaited Messiah. God had been promising the Messiah for centuries. Mm-hmm. Um, they had received Jesus. You are the Christ, they said to him. Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew Mashiach. You are the Messiah, the Holy One of Almighty God. We believe this, therefore we surrender ourselves to you. We give our lives over to you. God declared him to be the Messiah by raising him from the dead. So they did not think that they were in any way starting something new. They were simply carrying on that which had been 
been the faith of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the tribes and on down through David and Solomon and the kings, they weren't doing anything new. They were simply seeing the fulfillment, the completion of Judaism that God had promised to Abraham that through him, not only would this certain group of people be blessed, but through him, all the world would be blessed. So there were some differences insofar as the scope. Now the way to God is being open to the Gentiles. That's new. But insofar as living out their faith, they can, I mean, the very next chapter, um, chapter three of the book of Acts, Peter and John go to the temple to pray at the hour of prayer. They're not doing anything new. They're simply living as those who have received not only the covenant promise of God through Abraham, but those who have received the yes to that promise through Jesus Christ. And so I mentioned Tommy Nelson a lot, and one of my favorite things that I've heard him say is he said, "If, if, if you go talk to Abraham today, he sees himself as a Jewish person and Christian person together. It, it, that's not a distinction there. Now, now today we have the distinction of those who practice Judaism who deny that Christ is the Messiah. Then there are folks, like my friend Jordan, who practice Messianic Judaism, so still looking to some of the traditions, some of the feasts and festivals, the remembrances and things of that nature— with the recognition and in the light of Jesus as the Messiah. And so one of the things that you've been able to do here at First Baptist Church is lead us in a Passover Seder. Mm-hmm. But it's it's not just the Passover Seder saying, hopefully the Messiah will come someday. It's the Passover Seder in recognition that Messiah has come. And now our covenant with God is through Christ. That doesn't negate the Old Testament in any way insofar as the celebration of the Exodus, the remembrance of God's deliverance of his people. God delivers his people from the slavery and bondage of sin now, whereas in Exodus it was the slavery and bondage of slavery and bondage in Egypt. So again, they did not see themselves as establishing a new religion. In fact, the word Christian didn't come about until the church at Antioch. That's where followers of Christ were first called Christians. So they didn't view themselves as as a new religion. They viewed themselves as God's covenant people who had received the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Christ, and that the way to God was now being opened to all people through Christ. I've heard it put that the disciples who witnessed him be resurrected and you know receive the Holy Spirit, they had the down payment and the goods and the information on what's coming, and they had proof that it's coming, right? Yeah. It's not just that the Messiah is coming and the resurrection is coming and we believe this. It's, no, we've seen it. We, we have the goods in our hands. We, we can direct you to someone who literally saw a dead man rise from the dead, yes. proving what we believe. Yeah, that's exactly right. And if you go through, and we'll get into this here in a minute, but if you go through and look at the, the teachings in Acts, we really have a record of the early teachings of the apostles. Uh, we have Peter in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 3, um, Peter and John before the council in Acts chapter 4. Uh, we have Philip who is ministering in Samaria. We have Paul himself starting as Saul of Tarsus, becoming the apostle Paul. But we have record of the teaching of the apostles and and the fact that they had to wrestle with some things. When we get all the way to Acts 15, they have the Jerusalem council, the first church council. What do we do with these Gentiles? The way has been opened to the Gentiles. Do they have to be circumcised to become Jews who trust and follow Jesus? And the answer they came to was no. And literally the Gentiles cheered. 
Um, so again, there were, there were things to figure out, but they were continuing in that same religion, <laughs> worshiping the same God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who is also the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You mentioned on Sunday that the apostles didn't have a written New Testament in front of them. They, they, they were teaching what their, their rabbi, Jesus, had taught them. Uh, they, they had the, the Bible that Jesus had, that is the Old Testament, yes. and they had Jesus' teachings from the three years they were with him. What, what did it sound like in Acts? What did it sound like when you were spending the Sabbath with one of the apostles? So what's unbelievable, and, and I would, if, if we had time, I would just read through some of these entire messages. You know, again, we've mentioned Peter in Acts chapter 2, Peter in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John in Acts chapter 4, Stephen's speech. Stephen, the first martyr, when he gives his speech, I mean, what they're all doing, they are talking in these contexts that I've just mentioned, they are talking to Jewish people saying, Jesus is the Messiah. Here's proof. By the way, you are guilty of sinning against God and his Messiah, but there is forgiveness available to you. Come to God through Christ our Lord. Uh, then we see the way opened to Gentiles. Later, Paul's going to speak to Jews, and Paul's going to speak to Gentiles, and he's going to come at it in a totally different way. When Paul speaks to Jews, he's, he's using the Hebrew Scriptures that we call the Old Testament, and he is proving that Jesus is the Christ. When Paul is talking to, for example, a bunch of philosophers in Athens, Greece, there on the Areopagus, Mars Hill, he comes at it from a totally different perspective why? Because he's got a different audience. But that's what you have. You have these apostles, and remember Paul is the last of the apostles, uh, the last in the office of the apostle because he would say he was one untimely born, but he persecuted Christ. One of the qualifications of being one of these authoritative apostles is that you saw Christ, and Paul saw the risen Christ. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Um, but what they were doing was they were magnifying Christ within the context of the Hebrew Scriptures, which is what we call the Old Testament. And so we also have some of the other apostles' teachings recorded, for example, in the Gospels. I mean, we know that Matthew was an apostle. And so when he recorded his scripture, when he wrote down the gospel according to Matthew, we see that he is very interested in showing that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He is the fulfillment of the Messianic prophecies. God is, is giving the yes to his promises in Jesus Christ. We have the, the testimony of John. And of course, John's gospel is unlike the other three that we call the synoptics. John's is different. Uh, we, we see John's perspective as, as he seeks to show us really the deity of Christ. Um, we see Mark, which is John Mark, um, and, and scholars basically universally agree, if they believe the book to be true, that that is the testimony of Peter. Peter's eyewitness testimony to the life of Jesus that he shared with John Mark. We have Luke, Luke who traveled on the missionary journeys with the Apostle Paul. So what do you have in Luke? Well, you have Paul's recounting all of these things and, and Paul's retelling of the life of Jesus. We get some sense of what the oral teaching of the apostles must have been like. That, that's kind of it. You, you have... The magnification of Christ through it all. To the Jews, the magnification of Christ as the fulfillment of the Hebrew Scriptures. 
to the Gentiles the magnification of Christ as as the Son of Man who is also the Son of God who has come to call all people unto the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, and you talked about some of these things on Sunday as well, about how God didn't dictate the Bible to the authors of the books in the Bible. Uh, he, he didn't just say, okay, Moses, sit down, get a pen, write down whatever <laughs> I say. That's right. How were the Old Testament scriptures written, New Testament scriptures? Like, what does that process look like? It, it was a lot more organic than, than some sort of, here, take this down. It, it's not that God was treating the, the writers of scripture as his stenographers or his secretaries or whatever that case may be. Now, there were some instances in which he specifically said, write this down. In the Old Testament, for example, speaking through the prophets, when they say, thus saith the Lord, they're receiving the verbatim words of Almighty God. So when you go to Isaiah, for example, and you read those wonderful long um, soliloquies almost of God, um, God is giving Isaiah verbatim, this is what I am saying. Here's what you are to say, and that's why you see, thus saith the Lord, quote. And when you have a quote, that is direct dictation. This is what God is saying. Uh, in, in the book of Revelation, for example, we see God telling John to write to this church, right? To the angel of the church at Ephesus, right? Uh, to the angel of the church at Smyrna, right? So, so there's dictation there. This is exactly what I want you to say. Um, but the rest of the Bible largely comes in a much more organic fashion for the rest of the Bible, it's a, it's a lot more organic. So let me quote Wayne Grudem, who is one of my favorite systematic theologians. He says this, noting that there were some instances in which dictation seemed to be the method. He said, but in many other sections of Scripture, such direct dictation from God is certainly not the manner by which the words of Scripture were caused to come into being. The author of Hebrews says that God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, quote, in many and various ways, end quote. That's Hebrews 1.1. On the opposite end of the spectrum from dictation, we have, for instance, Luke's ordinary historical research for writing his gospel. He says, quote, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things which have been accomplished among us, just as they were delivered to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus." That's Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Grudem continues that this is clearly not a process of dictation. Luke used ordinary processes of speaking to eyewitnesses and gathering historical data in order that he might write an accurate account of the life and teachings of Jesus. He did his historical research thoroughly, listening to the reports of many eyewitnesses and evaluating his evidence carefully. The gospel he wrote emphasizes what he thought important to emphasize and reflects his own characteristic style of writing. So there you have Luke, and I'm, I'm not quoting Grudem right now, I'm speaking. Uh, there you have Luke just using a normal historical method. Anybody who's ever tried to write a history paper, that's what you do. You consult sources and, and you try to put it together in an orderly fashion and, and set forth, this is the story of this person. At other times, and I want to quote Grudem again because he does a really good job of clarifying the difference between direct dictation and then Luke's historical method, for example. 
Grudem continues, In between these two extremes of dictation, pure and simple on the one hand, and ordinary historical research on the other hand, we have many indications of various ways by which God communicated with the human authors of Scripture. In some cases, Scripture gives us hints of these various processes. It speaks of dreams, of visions, of hearing the Lord's voice or standing in the counsel of the Lord. It also speaks of men who were with Jesus and observed his life and listened to his teaching, men whose memory of these words and deeds was made completely accurate by the working of the Holy Spirit as he brought things to their remembrance. And you'll remember in John 14, 26, Jesus said the Holy Spirit will come and bring these things to your remembrance. So Grudem says, yet in many other cases, the manner used by God to bring about the result that the words of Scripture were his words and not simply disclosed to us. Apparently, many different methods were used, but it's not important that we discover precisely what these were in each case. And so let me end the quote of Grudem there, but let me just say that, that again, as God works all things together for good in so many ways in the lives of these authors, God was using their life circumstances, using the various, the various things that happened to them, working them together, and using their own writing style, using their own word choice in many regards um, to tell his story. So what you have are in, say, John's Gospel, for example. You have the words of John. And when you compare, if you go back and do, look at the original Greek, when you compare Luke's writing to John's writing, totally different. Uh, ask any student of New Testament Greek. They would much rather try to translate John than Luke. Hmm. Totally different. Luke's a physician. Luke writes more technically. Luke uses more words. As we read through the Bible, for example, Luke's gospel is long. Man, the chapters are long. And and obviously, he didn't delineate it into chapters. Uh, We did that much later. But it's just so dense and so rich. And so if you give a, a, we call it baby Greek, if you give a baby Greek student the choice uh, between translating Luke or 1 John, for example, they're going to pick 1 John every time. <laughs> so so God worked through these human authors, sometimes directly dictating, uh, at other times giving dreams, visions, those sorts of things. Um, but then at other times just inspiring them. And that's why I like to use that language of First Peter, and that's why I'm going to go to that passage for this Sunday's message, that he carried them along by his Holy Spirit. So God was, was, not, was not dictating to them. They weren't Siri. <laughs> God was carrying them along, causing everything to come together so that the message they communicated in their words was the Word of God. And I think understanding that gives you better understanding of the Bible and a stronger foundation for your faith. So you're talking about how the writings of John are generally easier in the Greek than Luke, but at the same time, Revelation, which is by John, is much more difficult because he was trying to translate it into Greek himself, even though he was not primarily a Greek speaker. He was a, probably a Hebrew speaker or Aramaic speaker. The fact that Revelation, like in the manuscripts, is more difficult Greek, but it betrays a lot of Semitisms or Jewish terminology in the Greek it should strengthen our faith, right? Like it tells us like, oh, this is true. Like this guy who didn't really know Greek all that well, he was told to dictate what he saw and send it off to the churches. That's real. Like that's what the documents suggest. Yeah. Well, and and again, you look back at the Gospels and you have, you'll have skeptics say, well, the Gospels don't agree 
and they don't all tell this. I mean, if they're if they're all inspired by God, why aren't they verbatim the same story? Well, it's because you have four different perspectives. You have four different accounts, four different views of the life of Jesus. And you know, God forbid, there's a car wreck out here, and let's say the three of us sitting in the room saw it, and then we're separated, and tell the police officer what happened. Well. We're going we're gonna to tell largely the same story, but I might add a little bit more detail in one place where Elliot might leave a little detail out, and he might have more detail in a, in a different aspect. Does that make any of them not true? No, it's just different perspectives of the same incident. Well, when we look at the Gospels, what are we seeing? We're seeing different perspectives of the same incidents. And so um, it's really neat that God used people, and he did not— take away their unique perspective, their unique style, um, but he worked through them to give us his word. And I, I think that's very special. So it's time for our listener question for today. Listeners, if you have a question, just submit it in the link in the show notes or comment on the post below. Jeff, have you watched The Chosen? Do you have any thoughts on the show? I have, and I love it. I mean... I kind of I'm I'm usually not an early adopter of technology, mm-hmm. um, but somehow I, I came across the chosen. And at the time, you downloaded an app, and then you had to connect it to your Roku, and all of that was new to me. But I did, and I was I, I don't remember if I was sick because this never happens. I was at home, saw this, and said I'm going to play episode one, and I did, and so. Bear in mind that The Chosen is a dramatization of Scripture. Mm-hmm. They employ artistic license to flesh out these stories. But I will tell you this. While I think The, the Chosen is a phenomenal representation of the truth of Scripture and that the, 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 the screenwriters and the producers worked really diligently to ensure that they stuck to Scripture— Scripture doesn't give us all the details that we are used to when we watch a movie, for example. So, so they do take some artistic license to, to look back to backstory and things of that nature. So I think that The Chosen is a wonderful companion of reading the Bible. But you got to know, there's, there's some things that they put in there that are not in Scripture. So we trust Scripture. The Chosen is not the authoritative, inerrant Word of God. But man, to see those things fleshed out. The miraculous catch of fish, Luke chapter 5. You know, when, when Peter and John, Peter and Andrew, uh, and James and John and Zebedee are there, and you see, you actually see what it looks like to toil all night and not catch any fish. You know, it's easy when we, when we read that. It's like, oh, yeah, well, they, they, they worked all night and didn't catch any fish. But when you watch that and you see Peter's frustration and you realize that it may have been different from what they portray, but you realize that this is his livelihood. And so a failure to catch fish is not just, oh, well, we had a bad night. It was, I'm not going to be able to put food on the table for my family. We know Peter was married. We know he had a mother-in-law. Um, he had a responsibility to provide for the members of his household. So this is not uh, this is not just some flippant. Oh, I went out on a recreational fishing trip, and and so we get to see that. Now again, they add in some details using artistic license to say, well, maybe it was this. Um, but to answer the question, I have seen the chosen. I love the chosen. It is not scripture, so watch it in conjunction with reading the Word of God. 
Um, but the authors, uh, the producers have done a phenomenal job at being faithful to Scripture, telling the story, and then giving a perspective that, for me, was remarkably eye-opening. Yeah. I don't think there's a single episode of The Chosen that I've made it through without weeping. Yeah, I know. Because you see these stories come to life. You know, the, the, the leper, for example— and I would say spoiler alert, but all you got to do is read the Gospels, and they're there. Um, but the leper who is cleansed, and uh, if you're willing, you can make me well. And, 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 and even the fact that Jesus touched him and the reaction of the disciples, what, what, what are you doing? You don't, don't touch a leper. You're going to get leprosy. You're going to infect us all. You know, all those, all those visceral responses that are human responses. Sometimes when we read the story— at least, at least if you're like me, you can miss some of that. And I think they do a phenomenal job at bringing out that human element to show us the divine Son of God. I haven't gotten into season three yet, but I've watched all of seasons one and two, and I'm very, very thankful for The Chosen. Yeah, it's a phenomenal show, and they're doing a great job. I'm sure season three is going to be just as good as the first two. Well, a lot of people don't know this, but our executive pastor, David Tooley, is actually in The Chosen. No. Yeah. When Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount, David is one of the disciples on the mountain listening to Jesus teach. No way. So he got to go film and was sending me pictures of himself with various disciples. He said, Jesus, they kind of kept off you know, by himself. But the other disciples were coming up, and David got a lot of good pictures with, uh, with those folks. So next time you see Pastor David, ask him about being an extra in The Chosen. Yeah. Well, how many churches can say they have an executive pastor who is there for the Beatitudes? <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> oh, man. Jeff, can you pray us out for today? Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we do thank you so much that through Christ you have chosen us. Oh, my goodness. We're so thankful that you so loved a world full of sinners that while we were yet sinners, you sent your only begotten Son that we might know you. And Lord, we thank you that you have opened the way to yourself through Christ, to Jews and Gentiles alike, and that encompasses all people everywhere, that your arms are open, that we may come to you. And so, Lord, through the disciplines, the daily practices that we seek to engage day by day, we pray that you would draw us closer to yourself. Lord, through your word that we believe is unequivocally true, Continue to reveal to us who you are and who we are and what it means to be in Christ and to walk by faith. Father, we love you. We trust you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to our channel. To submit a question about Sunday's sermon, the Bible, or walking with Jesus, click the link in the episode description. Our hosts today are Pastor Jeff Reynolds and myself, Jordan Upton. Our engineer is Elliot Beckley.